You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Welcome to this episode of Disease Du Jour on the topic of equine botulism with Dr. Amy Johnson of the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine. I'm your host, Kim Brown, editor of Equimanagement. The Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you in 2023 by Merck Animal Health. Dr. Johnson received her DVM from Cornell University College of Veterinary Medicine in 2003. She's a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine in Large Animal and Neurology. Dr. Johnson is the Marilyn M. Simpson Associate Professor of Equine Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine, New Bolton Center, and the Section Chief for Internal Medicine and Ophthalmology, University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine. Thank you, Dr. Johnson, for joining us today on Disease to George to talk about equine botulism. Thank you very much for having me, Kim. So we've heard a lot about equine botulism outbreaks occurring in recent years. And recently, we saw the death of at least 48 horses in Louisiana and multiple other states that was officially linked to Clostridium botulinum type C and alfalfa hay cubes. And we know that many other horses were sickened by the feed. So today, I just want to talk about the basics of botulism and how it affects horses. So let's just start out with what is botulism? Botulism is a disease of horses and actually many other species, including people. And it is a disease that manifests as very profound muscle weakness throughout the body, but importantly affecting both the animal's ability to stand as well as their ability to swallow. And it's actually an intoxication. So it is caused by a toxin that is produced by the bacterium Clostridium botulinum. Okay, so we know that botulism has been looked at by governments around the world as as a a weapon of war because it's that deadly. So why is it so toxic to horses? I mean, is is that true of all species or horses just especially sensitive? Horses do seem to be uniquely susceptible to the effects of the toxin, and it requires a smaller amount on a weight basis to make a horse show clinical signs than virtually every other species. And they're also housed in environments where they are exposed to this toxin um, in certain areas of the United States, perhaps more than your domesticated dog or cat might be. Okay. So... How does it form? What causes this type of toxin? Yeah, so this bacterium has a strong predilection for growing in low oxygen and also kind of alkaline or basic environments. So the conditions that favor its growth are when, and I'll take a step back and say that it's predominantly in the United States found in the soil, actually. So it's just, it's a bacteria that's everywhere and it's in the soil and it often doesn't cause a problem when um, horses are, say, grazing grass growing from the soil because it's a very high oxygen environment. We run into trouble when it, the soil that contains spores of this bacteria, because it does produce spores, kind of get into, say, a big round bale of hay or into some forage that's meant to be fermented. And then maybe the hay isn't stored properly. Maybe the plastic that's surrounding the big round bale is damaged. 
and you create this situation where you have this moist environment that is anaerobic, so very low oxygen, and then if it becomes alkaline as well rather than acidified, you'll have growth of this bacteria. So it's there in this inactive spore state, and then it starts to grow and it starts to reproduce. And it's the growing bacteria, what we call the vegetative form, that produces this toxin. And again, the toxin is just within this spoiled usually forage material and if a horse has the misfortune to come across and eat the forage material that has been spoiled they'll consume not only the spores and the growing bacteria but also some of this toxin and it's thought that that's the way that most horses are exposed to this is actually by accidentally eating the toxin produced by this bacteria. Okay so tell us you know, as a veterinarian, if your horse owner, you know, client calls and says, oh, my gosh, my horse is doing this, this and this. What would you make you suspect that the horse had uh, botulism? Yeah, it can be a little bit tricky to diagnose, especially in the early stages. And I would say that the most common things it's mistaken for is an episode of colic or an episode of choke or esophageal obstruction. And the reason for that is that the horses, usually these horses are actually quite hungry. They want to eat and they want to drink. But one of the early clinical signs is loss of the ability to swallow. And so they may not consume all of their food because they simply can't. They will often take a bite and they'll be chewing. And yet you'll see that they have trouble manipulating the food from the front of their mouth to the back of their mouth and swallowing. So they may chew for an excessively long time on a single mouthful. And sometimes, again, because they're having trouble swallowing, they may actually have feed material or saliva that's appearing at their nostrils in the same way that a horse that has choke or an esophageal obstruction might be refluxing food back into its nasal passageways because the horse can't swallow appropriately. And the other things that we see is in the early stages of muscle weakness, they tend to get muscle tremors that are hard to even notice at first. They start over maybe the triceps of the front legs and maybe a little bit over the hindquarters. But then as the horse fatigues and as more and more toxin binds and takes effect, the horse will start to they they almost look uncomfortable. They're shifting their weight from one foot to the other. They're treading in place. They may be circling. And what they're actually trying to do is fight gravity. So they're trying to recruit different muscles to help support their weight against gravity and continue to stand. But it looks a lot like a horse that might be having some degree of abdominal discomfort. And then, of course, as they get weaker and weaker, they really have no choice but to lie down. And that's another reason that they're frequently misinterpreted as a colic because they're lying down more than usual. They may get up for a short period of time, walk around, start to shake and lie back down. And when they're forced to stand or if they're forced to exercise, they might get very agitated and sweat quite a bit because they're just working so hard to stay on their feet. Um, One thing I'll mention for um, vets and owners is one of the things that makes these horses look different than a typical course with abdominal pain or colic is that when a horse with abdominal pain lies down, they usually continue to look uncomfortable. So they might flank watch or roll or kick or look back at their side. 
versus a horse with botulism that when they lie down, they look relieved. So their heart rate will often go down. They're resting. They rest their chin on their ground. They don't continue to look distressed. They just look happy to be down. Today's Disease Is Your podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health, the maker of prestige vaccines, Banamine, Panicure, Regimate, Protozil, and other trusted equine health solutions. Merck Animal Health works for you and for horses. Learn more about Merck Animal Health's comprehensive portfolio of products, as well as their unconditional investment in our industry, profession, and community through programs such as the Respiratory Biosurveillance Program, the partnership with Equitrace, which delivers secure, streamlined record-keeping and instantaneous temperature measurements when coupled with Merck Animal Health Biotherm Microchips. Visit MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com for more information. Once the, the veterinarian has decided, okay, this, is, this, this could be botulism, what sort of background are you going to ask the owner to see if you can pinpoint maybe what the cause was? So some really important questions would be the horse's vaccination status. There is a vaccine for botulism type B. And there, in the United States anyway, there are three clinically relevant types. There's type A, type B, and type C. Type A and type B are the ones that are frequently associated with kind of soil contamination of food and rotting vegetation. Type B is very predominant east of the Mississippi, especially mid-Atlantic region where I am, Kentucky. Type A is more prevalent out towards the west coast. And the vaccine, importantly, is only protective against type B. So there's a type B toxoid vaccine that's available. And so in our area, east of the Mississippi in the mid-Atlantic region, if a horse has a good vaccination history, then that would potentially decrease your index of suspicion for botulism because most of the cases we see here are type B cases. But the vaccine is not cross-protective. So a horse vaccinated for type B can still get type A or type C. So on the West Coast, they're probably less likely to vaccinate because the vaccine is not necessarily protective against one of the more predominant types. And also importantly, the type C cases, which are usually associated with an animal that has died in an actual carcass or carry-on contaminating the food, as happened recently with these alfalfa hay cubes, um, the vaccine is not protective against that type either. So while it's really important to establish a vaccination history and we expect it to be protective against type B, it doesn't guarantee that the horse doesn't have botulism. The other really important thing is what the horse is being fed and the conditions in which that feed has been stored. So in our area, one of the biggest risk factors is these large round bales of hay that maybe have not been stored properly or you know, were harvested too early when they were wet um, or fermented feed. That's the other um, type of food product. So horses, we usually don't recommend that they be fed any sort of silage or haylage because those types of feed are more likely to be contaminated with Clostridium botulinum and to make horses sick. Okay. And if you have one animal that gets sick on a property, what are you going to recommend to the owner once you say, this is botulism? I mean, how, how do you do a positive diagnosis? And then what do you recommend for the other animals on the property as management? 
Yeah. So if you have one animal affected and there is something that could be identified as a potential risk factor, like other horses out in the same field eating from the same big round bale of hay or square bale, it doesn't have to be round, but just a very large bale of hay or a new feed source, like with these alfalfa cubes, um, where the horses all got a new feed source at the same time, the first thing I would suggest is remove is changing the feed source so that if there is something that can be identified as a potential cause, no one else gets exposed to it until you figure out whether or not it is truly the cause or not. The second thing that I would recommend would be very close monitoring of the other horses. And some of the ways that we do that, other than just observing them and seeing whether they have any signs of muscle weakness, would be doing what we call a grain test and then a tongue tone or tongue stress test. And so for the grain test, it's really simple. You're just seeing whether a horse can consume eight ounces or a cup of grain as quickly as they normally would. And if you put, you know, a cup of sweet feed in a bucket or a pan, most normal horses will finish it in less than two minutes and sometimes significantly less than that amount of time. (laughs) If it's a horse with botulism, they may not, they likely will not be able to do that. They'll be interested oftentimes, but if they'll chew for a prolonged period of time, you might see them dropping feed back into the pan or even they'll leave these saliva trails in the bottom of the pan that almost looks like a slug trail or something as they're trying to consume the feed. So that's one thing. The other thing is to very gently try to pull the horse's tongue from the side of its mouth, kind of in the corner where they don't have any teeth to bite you, and then see if the horse is able to retract their tongue back into their mouth. Most horses can do it with a tug or two, and most horses do it pretty quickly. A horse that is in the early stages of botulism may have weak tongue tone and not be able to pull it back quickly or the tongue may just feel like there's not as much strength in it when you're pulling it out they feel kind of flabby and it might be covered with saliva and feed material because they're again they're not moving food to the back of their mouth and swallowing it as they should so it feels slimy and dirty as opposed to a normal horse tongue so those are both tests that you can do and if you do identify suspect cases then the ideal is to treat them really early because we do have an antitoxin that will bind circulating toxin and it can be really helpful in saving horses lives if you can give it to them early enough in the course of disease so when they are first starting to show clinical signs of botulism and they're still able to stand on their own that's a really good time to treat them the antitoxin it can't remove toxin that's already been bound and internalized by the cells within the horse's body, but it binds anything that's still circulating in the bloodstream or as it's being absorbed from the GI tract. If you wait until the horse is showing really severe clinical signs so they can't stand up on their own, and even with treatment, it's unlikely that you will be able to save that horse's life because you're just treating them too late and all of that toxin is already bound and taking effect. Okay, that's a good point. And 
One of the, the questions I had, because I, I believe when you had, I listened to a presentation you made several years ago, and you were talking about some horses are more susceptible to this than others. Like you said, one horse may be eating out of the bale and get more, a, a higher dose of the toxin, but that some horses might react. Like if they are, are older, having a compromised immune system or younger, um, am I just misremembering that or is that something that you have seen? I think it has more to do with the level of intoxication, the amount of the toxin that a horse consumes. Usually this contamination, this toxin is not spread evenly throughout a feed source. Um, So it might be, though, that the horses that are the the boss horses, the more aggressive horses that are first to the food, maybe they consume more of it just because they're consuming more from that feed source. So those are the ones that are um, more substantially affected. I I haven't appreciated a a breed susceptibility necessarily or an age susceptibility. Although in terms of treating these horses, some horses are more likely to recover than others given the same level of intoxication because of the way they react to us trying to help them. And what I mean by that is that if you have a very calm horse that is tolerating recumbency well and doesn't struggle and flail, that simply lies quietly and perhaps waits for you to help them up with a sling and then lies down when they're tired again and kind of takes care of themselves, you are likely to have a better outcome with that horse than a horse that panics when they don't have the strength to stand up and wastes a lot of energy struggling and flailing and kicking and trying to get themselves up and doesn't allow you to help them and take care of them. So the personality of the horse can affect both the likelihood that they consume a lot of toxin as well as the our ability to help them in a management situation. But um, I, maybe that's what you're thinking of. That, that may have been it. So good. Okay. And I guess the last Excuse me. The last question is, how can veterinarians help horse owners avoid the possible contamination with botulism? I mean, you mentioned a little before, but let's really get talk about how do how do veterinarians talk to owners? Yeah, well, the first thing I would say is to discuss whether or not your horse is in a situation where vaccination is warranted. Um, It's a risk-based vaccine. It's not a core vaccine. But in my area of the country, I consider it to be almost a mandatory vaccine because we know that we have so much of this bacteria in the soil here and the possibility for contamination of hay and, you know, and forage. And, you know, even, even if you're not feeding from a round bale, if you're throwing flakes of hay in the same area of the field every time and you have certain weather conditions and the hay is getting ground down into the mud, it it can get contaminated. So whether or not the horses should be vaccinated, and that would obviously be areas where type B is the predominant type. The other important tip for people who own horses or are taking care of horses is to pay attention to what you're feeding your horses, particularly these forage sources. And so even if you don't have one of these big bales of hay, if if you're feeding small bales, but you break open a bale to toss some flakes to the horses and there's fur or other evidence that an animal may have died in or near the hay bale and remains of the animal got caught up in that bale during processing, then there's a risk of 
contamination with this bacteria and its toxins. So obviously you would choose not to feed that bale of hay to the horses. If you're opening up a bag of hay cubes and you had a bad smell, you know, there are lots of reasons not to feed spoiled hay and forage to horses. There are respiratory concerns, but especially, you know, those, those musty moldy feed sources may have provided a good environment for this bacteria to grow and produce toxin. Yeah, and, and we know that this year there's been a, hay has been hard to come by. So I know some people are feeding cubes or other, you know, thing types of hay, maybe big bales that they hadn't usually fed in the past. So this is good advice if as a veterinarian you, you go on and you notice that they have changed some feed or maybe even ask if you're in an area where it's, it's you know, you find botulism. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else, Dr. Johnson, that you would like to add to um, understanding better botulism in horses? No, I think we've covered most of the important features. Um, I mean, again, the things for vets to really think about is if the horse, you know, looks like it might be a choke and yet the tube passes really easily with no obstruction to have botulism in the back of your mind as a possibility for why the horse can't swallow. Or if you get called out for a colic and yet that horse still looks very much like they want to eat or they lie down and then look very content and are not rolling or flank watching to think about the possibility that botulism could be affecting that horse. And then, of course, you know, in the worst case scenarios, the first sign might be that a horse is found dead in the field because it can it can kill animals really quickly if they ingest a lot of the toxin. And then if there are other animals in that environment that are not acting normally, they're not finishing their food, they're shaking, they're looking weak, there aren't a ton of problems in horses that cause outbreaks and acute deaths in multiple horses. Luckily, it's not a situation that we deal with very commonly, but when it occurs, botulism is one of the most common diseases to do it. So just to have it on your radar, um, because the sooner you figure out that it is what might be happening, the sooner you can potentially start monitoring and treating the other horses with antitoxin. Um, I guess that's the other tip I would have would be to identify the closest source of antitoxin. If you're a big clinic, you may want to have some in the freezer because these emergencies never happen during a weekday when it's easy to get a product in. They are Friday night emergencies when it's harder to get products shipped. So um, it may be that your local university has antitoxin on hand and you just decide that you're going to refer the horse or your local referral hospital. But if you're a big clinic and you're working in an area where you have seen botulism before, having a unit or two in your own freezer so that you're ready to go if you need to treat a potential case would be a really important thing to at least know where to go. That's a great point. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Johnson, for joining me today on this episode of Disease to Shore. And a big thanks to our audience for listening. And a special thanks to our 2023 sponsor, Merck Animal Health, for letting us have these discussions. And if you have any questions or suggestions, you can send an email to me at kbrown, that's the letter K Brown, at equinenetwork.com. Disease Du Jour is part of the Horse Radio Network, the leading podcast network for horse lovers worldwide and a division of Equine Network.